The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning. Wasn't that a beautiful snowfall yesterday? That was gorgeous. Um, did you think we were going to get maybe another snow day out of it? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, when I was thinking of the beauty of the snow, I also realized that shoveling comes with it. So I try to think of the blessing of exercise while I do that. Um, and they may not be here, but just a, a shout out to our campuses, campus services people, because, um, yeah. You know what snow day means for them, so we're just really thankful for their service. It's Black History Month, and I want to remind you all to uh, check out different social media channels uh, that we have, just um, the different things that we'll be um, thinking on, celebrating, uh, learning about during Black History Month. And there's a quote from Frederick Douglass that um, I've thought off and on, says this, a little learning indeed may be a dangerous thing, but the lack of learning is a calamity to all people. And when I think of that, when I uh, think of the celebration of Black History Month, and I think about the triumphs, the tragedies, the uh, achievements, the agonies of um, the many black Americans throughout history, uh, I don't want to ever think that the little bit that I learned uh, means that I understand everything about um, the experience of my black brothers and sisters. Um, but on the other hand, if I learn nothing, then I'm in ever worse condition. So I would um, encourage you, encourage myself as we celebrate Black History Month that we go beyond a little learning to listening, to understanding, to comprehending, and uh, attending to uh, Black History Month and encourage you about that. This morning, I'm gonna read from Philippians chapter two, verses 19 through 30. Paul says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare for they all seek their own interest, not those of Christ, Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us um, eyes to see, ears to hear, hear, hearts that are open to the word that Dr. Plummer has for us this morning. 
and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that uh, I really enjoyed when I moved up to the School of Divinity was being across the hall from Dr. Plummer. That was one of the great benefits and joys of moving there, and one of the great sorrows I had was when I left the School of Divinity and moved from uh, the floor from Dr. Plummer's office. In the time that I spent there, uh, it was just really a joy and a privilege to uh, get to know him and consider him a friend. So without um, further ado, Dr. Keith Plummer. Thank you very much. I miss you. Um, oh, if those halls could talk about the many, many, probably hours that we spent uh, just hanging out either across from each other's office or in each other's office. Um, really, really mutual affection. Thank you. I too um, thought maybe we'd have a snow day. Um, I was fearing it, though, because then I thought they might tell me that I'd have to preach on Zoom, and I didn't want to do that. But I'm glad that we're here. And I hope that you have your Bible uh, still out to the passage that Mr. Jalovic uh, read for us just now. Uh, that passage that was read for us, uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, is one that has been the subject of some debate among biblical commentators. And the reason for this is because it's what is known as a travelogue, um, where a writer would give some kind of laying out of future travel plans related to scheduling, destinations, purpose, and so forth. And in this case, um, obviously, since Paul was in prison, it wasn't his particular travelogue, though he does talk about wanting to uh, be with the Philippians soon but it had to do with the travel plans of two of his associates, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And generally, though there are some exceptions, this is the kind of material that Paul includes at the end or near the end of his letters. And that has led some commentators to conclude that what we have in these verses is a, a dramatic, abrupt change of subject matter. And in some cases, people have even said that what we might have here is the beginning of the end of another letter. You can understand that someone could think that at first glance, perhaps, but upon close observation, I think that's wrong. And to the contrary, I think there is a, an abundance of evidence in this passage to show that it is more than simply a travelogue, it is more than simply informative, but it is also intended by the apostle to be instructional, and that it is far from unrelated to one of the letter's major themes. But before we get into that, just a, a little bit by way of um, overview or review, uh, Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison on account of his testimony to Christ. He um, somehow news of his confinement has gotten to the uh, Philippians, and they have sent Epaphroditus, whom we'll get to in a bit, as a messenger, 
and as a minister to him, and apparently he brought some kind of monetary gift to them, as well as it seems as though he was planning on being with him for some time to uh, serve him, to assist him during his imprisonment. And as we'll see, Paul thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus back earlier than planned, which might have given the Philippians a concern that somehow he had failed in his mission and, and so forth. But I want us to look at the, these travel plans that uh, Paul gives for these two men who are his associates and his friends. And in verses 19 through 24, Paul gives his plans for Timothy, and then the remainder of that section for Epaphroditus. And Paul gives in verse 19 uh, two reasons that he is hoping to send Timothy. Uh, one is that Paul might be cheered by Timothy's bringing a good report about the Philippians, and the other is that they would be uh, cheered by news of him. And I take that from verse 19 where he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. The idea seems to be that there was a dual purpose in Timothy's going to the Philippians, that he would uh, take news to the Philippians about what Paul's state was and that they would be cheered, encouraged, um, and also that Timothy upon return would be able to give uh, Paul uh, news of them that would also be encouraging to him. And then in the following verses, Paul explains why it is that he wants to send Timothy. Now, the Philippians have some um, knowledge of Timothy. Timothy and Paul had ministry amongst them. But apparently Timothy, whom they probably were was expecting, wasn't going to be able to go immediately. But Paul, maybe because he wants them to understand that the delay of Timothy isn't because he's not concerned, but that Paul has need for him. But I want you to pay attention to how it is that Paul describes this young disciple. Verse 20, he says that he doesn't have anyone else like him. And the word that Paul uses here is a very rare adjective that means of equal soul, or feeling, or mind. In other words, Timothy was like Paul in his affections for the Philippians. Like Paul, he was genuinely concerned for their welfare. And that verb, concern, to be concerned, is um, a word that is intense. It is elsewhere translated, later in chapter 4, as to be anxious, where Paul says, do not be anxious for anything. And one writer says, without such negative connotations here, that is in chapter 2, it does carry with it overtones of the pressure or weight of anxiety that grows out of true concern for the welfare of others. It's the same verb, by the way, that Paul uses in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 28, where he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety, my concern 
for the churches. So Timothy was um, like Paul in that he was genuinely, sincerely, and deeply concerned, anxious even, about the welfare of the Philippians. And Paul goes on to say that as he considers all of the other people whom he might send to the Philippians, Timothy stood out in his sincere concern for the Philippians' well-being. All the others, he says in verse 21, seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear those words, seek their own interests, our first inclination might be to conclude that what he has in mind is limited to just a, a selfishness, a self-centered orientation that is focusing upon pleasure and sin at the expense of the work of Christ. And certainly that is a temptation to which we are prone. But in uh, studying this passage and looking at what others had to say, I came across another possible meaning that I had never considered before. Listen to what this one author said. For Paul, the journey to Philippi was number one priority. To refuse this mission was to be seeking one's own interests and to care nothing for the cause of Christ. For others, the welfare of this distant church at Philippi was not nearly so important as the welfare of their own community and its outreach to surrounding cities. To drop their commitments to their immediate churches and to travel to Philippi, even if an apostle did desire this, would itself be to them a seeking of their own interests and not Christ. And I think it's worthy of consideration that we can be seeking our own interests even when we're pursuing spiritual things. Does that make sense? It's very easy to limit our spiritual concerns to only those things that immediately affect us. It's good that I seek to grow in my spiritual life, but the interests of Christ extend beyond my own spiritual growth. It's easy to restrict our concerns to those of the American church, but the interests of Christ extend beyond that of merely the concerns about the American church. We recently just had an intensive week, World Reach Week, where we were looking at what God is doing amongst the, the peoples of the world and not simply here. A cursory survey of the internet reveals how prone we are to limit our idea of the things of Christ to that which directly impacts my group, whether it be ethnically or otherwise. But again, while Jesus is concerned about that, his interests extend beyond merely 
my group. There's another important point to notice in Paul's description of Timothy. Timothy is genuinely concerned for the Philippians' welfare, chapter 2, verse 20, but yet in the very next verse, Paul says that unlike others who seek their own interests, Timothy seeks the interests of Christ. Note what he's doing there. He's using the welfare of others and the interests of Christ interchangeably. The welfare of the Philippians, he is equating with the interests of Christ. In other words, the welfare of his people is among Jesus' foremost interests. Realizing this does not allow us to adopt an attitude that says, I'm about the things of Christ, but I can't be so bothered with the well-being of other Christians. Jesus is intensely committed to and concerned about the welfare, the health, the thriving, the nurture of the members of his body. Which means that if we are to have his mind, we must be too. Finally, in verse 22, Paul commends Timothy by saying that he has demonstrated his worth by his ministry with Paul. And, and here Paul uses one of the most beautiful and tender images that was very common in his day. Uh, Paul says that Timothy served not him, as we might expect, but with him in the gospel as a son with his father. In Paul's day, it was just a, a given, an expectation, that a, a child, a son, would be mentored, apprenticed by his father in the trade of his father. And, and Paul uses that imagery to say, you know that Timothy has proven his worth by serving with me in the gospel as a son with his father. Well, Paul goes on, and then he discusses Epaphroditus. And he says that he felt it necessary. There was some need to send Epaphroditus back. I do believe that this was, as I said before, premature. And this was due to um, an illness that he had suffered. But look at the, the ways that Paul describes Epaphroditus. He uses a number of terms, all of which emphasize not only his high regard for Epaphroditus, but his partnership, regarding him as a partner in the gospel. He calls him his brother, his fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. And he's sending him back because either en route to Paul or while he was with Paul, he fell deathly ill. And somehow news of this illness gets back to Philippi and Epaphroditus' reaction is amazing. He was distressed, not for himself, but for his countrymen, 
And that word that is translated distressed is the same word that Mark uses, for example, in his gospel when he is talking about the anguish that seized Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It describes, as one author says, the confused, restless, half-distracted state which is produced by physical derangement or mental distress. But why was Epaphroditus so distressed? When I get sick, I am distressed because I am sick. When I am sick, I am distressed because people aren't tending to me in the manner that I would have them do. But Epaphroditus, the cause of his distress is something beyond himself. The cause of his distress was his anxiety for the Philippians' anxiety for him upon their learning that he was sick. Epaphroditus, in other words, looked beyond his own concerns to the welfare of the Philippians. Paul gives this command then, because remember, as I said, there, there probably was a concern that since Epaphroditus is coming back, uh, maybe it is that he did not fulfill the mission that we sent him to do. Because they sent him not only to be a messenger delivering a gift, but as he says, a minister to his need. And so Paul wants to assure them. He wants to encourage them, receive him with joy. And, he says, honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, I said that this is more than a travel log, that Paul is doing more than just talking about sending Timothy and Epaphroditus and what his plans are. And that what he's saying about them is very much related to one of the book's major themes. We don't know the particular details, but a careful reading of the entirety of the letter makes it reasonable to conclude that one of Paul's purposes, it wasn't the only purpose, but one of Paul's purposes in writing and sending this letter to the Philippians was to address some kind of conflict and divisiveness that existed in the midst of this congregation. There was a disunity. We know that on several fronts, there were these two women named Euodia and Syntyche, and they had a dispute between them. Paul addresses that in chapter four, verse two, and he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And a number of commentators suggest that perhaps this dispute, this conflict between this women, these women had um, extended beyond merely their relationship and led to arguing and complaining throughout the entirety of the Philippian community. Look at chapter 2, verses 14 and 16, where Paul gives this command, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a crooked and perverse generation. And I just realized, 
I thought something didn't print, but it did. Twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. When Paul gives these commands, do everything without grumbling and dispute and so forth, he's not just thinking, what would be a good moral command to throw in here? Usually what he's doing is he's addressing something that's actually an issue there. And here was the case here. Now, the discord at Philippi probably was not at the level of Corinth. But nevertheless, there was some kind of fellowship-threatening tension that was there. And this is why Paul pleads in the first part of chapter 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Imitation is a necessary ingredient in the pursuit of Christ-like maturity. Of course, as Paul commands in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, we are to be imitators of God as beloved children. But we also need, regardless of how long we have been in Christ, we need the examples of other believers that we might imitate them. And by imitation, I don't mean a mindless parroting, an externalism that simply goes through the motions of copying the behaviors of other believers. That's not what I mean by imitation. No, I'm talking about an informed following of the attitudes and conduct of other people in whom the Holy Spirit is working wisdom and holiness. God gives us patterns. Consider what the writer of Hebrews commands in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Why? Because the object of their faith, Jesus Christ, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, in the letter to the Philippians, we find a number of references to the place of imitation. Paul urges them in chapter 3, verse 17, brothers join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Yes, we are to keep our eyes on Jesus, but God gives us patterns amongst one another. And Paul says, keep your eyes, watch, learn from those who walk in the pattern that you have in us. And in the following chapter, chapter 4, he exhorts the Philippians to practice what they had learned and received and heard and seen in him. Verse 9. Paul was doing much more than just informing the Philippians about his plans for Timothy and Epaphroditus. 
and he would have us take away from his words concerning Timothy and Epaphroditus more than just the historical knowledge of what it was that he was planning to do concerning their return, their travel to Philippi. No, Paul was holding these two brothers in Christ up as examples of the kind of God-obeying, other-serving self-denial that was supremely modeled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy and Epaphroditus are lesser lights, to be sure, but they are lesser lights that help us to see the greatest light better. They are living illustrations of the Savior. Jesus is without doubt the supreme example of humble, costly, self-denying service motivated by a reverence for God and a love for others and a concern for their good. But in his mercy, God puts people in our paths who by the power of his spirit display in faulty ways to be sure, but nevertheless display something of Jesus to us. That was true of Timothy. That was true of Epaphroditus. Think for a moment of whom is it true in your life? Who are the people that God has placed in your way who are examples of what it is that Paul calls us to in the passage that we are focusing on in our One Scripture, One University project. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that Dr. Williams has led us in thinking through. Paul says about Epaphroditus, receive him with joy and honor such men. And the reason that he gives is because he risked his life for the sake of the gospel. You might not know anyone who has risked their life for the gospel. But let me tell you this, Epaphroditus and Timothy, they got to where they were by making conscientious, small, regular decisions. And I would challenge you and I would encourage you as you think about who it is that God has placed in your life, fellow students, pastors, parents, as you think about someone who comes to mind, receive them with joy. Honor them. Tell them, you know what? I really appreciate and grateful to God for the fact that you are a lesser light that enables me to grasp who and what Jesus is better. Thank you. I mentioned chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I want you to hear these words. I'm going to read from 3 to 11. I mean, you can read along if you would like. I want you to see how it is that Paul uses the, the very same language that he employs here of Timothy, particularly. 
but he illustrates it also in the life of Epaphroditus. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these ancient words, words that um, are so much more than merely a vehicle for information about an apostle's plans, but words that illustrate for us what it means and what it looks like to embody the example of Christ's servanthood. We do thank you for the people who have come to mind, or as we continue to reflect on these verses, people that will come to mind that you have placed in our lives that help us to, to see with clarity the kind of interest in others that in many times supersedes interests of one's own, that reflect the humility and the obedience of Jesus Christ. We thank you for these lesser lights. We pray that you would move upon us to honor them, to give them gratitude, not as objects in themselves, but as those who help us to worship you better. And above all, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who perfectly exemplifies all of these things. And Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, you would work in us in powerful ways that we might be such people, that you would liberate us from confining our interests simply to our own concerns, and that we, because we know Jesus does, would take sincere, genuine concern in the well-being of his people. Even this day, Lord, show us how that might be so, and we shall give you all of the praise and thanksgiving. We thank you for your great grace, the faithfulness of which we sang, and by your Spirit we pray that this day we would sweetly meditate upon you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are dismissed. <laughs>